chapter 3, and we are nine weeks into our journey through the gospel of John, a journey where the apostle John is calling us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's calling us to believe that for life, to grow in that um, in our lives. And over the last two weeks with Brother Dave and uh, with Pastor Jordan's help, we have walked through Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, and we have heard the call to be born Again, and the declaration that God so loved the world that he sent forth his only begotten son that we may have eternal life. And now the Apostle John takes us from a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus and drops us into the middle of a conflict. So a, a conflict centered around who's supposed to be getting the attention? Who's supposed to be getting the glory? Let me frame that all um, this way. A great piece of art deserves a beautiful frame, but not one so outlandish that it competes for attention. So a frame just gives the artwork context, but the art is the reason that the frame exists. Or let me put it to you this way. Would you rather, or would you more likely, would it be more likely for you to spend a day at a frame shop or a day in an art museum? Now, some of you, maybe you're just weird and you'd like to just hang out with frames. I I, I don't know. But the deal is you never want the frame to outdo the art. And John the Baptist, although he had been proclaimed by Jesus as the greatest, was great only because he served as a frame for the greater person. He served as a frame for Jesus himself. He didn't skew the story of the coming Messiah to make himself greater than he was. If you remember the rest of the story, John the Baptist actually had his head removed from him permanently. It was not given back. And he gave his life for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of making much of him. Basically, John knew that the whole purpose of his mission was to proclaim, hey guys, get ready, the real deal is coming. I'm not it, the real deal is coming. And unfortunately for us, the ongoing temptation for every person in this room or listening online is to be the picture, meaning to make ourselves the point. The temptation within all of us is to make ourselves the point and then, watch me, allow, like we're doing him a favor, allow Jesus to be the frame that holds us together, the frame that gives us stability, the frame that exists for us in that context. And when we think about that, we realize that we as a culture have become ever more narcissistic. And its effects have infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. Sermon titles such as Barriers to Blessings, The Power of Potential, Your Dream is Your Destiny, You Are Gifted, You Get What You Go For, and Favor is Looking for You. Those sermon titles seem to be more about us than about God. And sadly, those are actual sermon titles from some of America's most popular churches making it a gospel about us. Service events, mission trips, even simply helping others, if we're not careful, can be more about us feeling good or taking a selfie of it than about making much of Jesus. We have a tendency, if we're not careful, to make things about us, and God needs to open our eyes for us to see how narcissistic we actually can be or maybe even are. 
Narcissism comes from the Greek myth of Narcissus who couldn't stop looking at his own reflection to the point that he died. And biblically, the root of narcissism is pride. It's the idolatry of, of self. And narcissists see every situation and how it affects them. The self-centered person, when you think about it, is not able to ever see their need. Um, they're never able to recognize their sin. or never able to see their need for a Savior. And rather than to give thanks to God, they, um, they want to steal the glory from God. They want to make sure the point is, is them. And then follow me here. Then you have the, please watch it, the Christian narcissist that's unable to worship the Lord because every part of their Christian life has become tainted with the question of how does this affect me? Or what's in this for me? Or how does this benefit me? Even coming to a place like this, there are many narcissistic Christians who are looking for a feeling, looking for something that will benefit them, that will bless them, that will make them greater than what they actually are instead of making Jesus greater in their lives. That didn't get an amen from any of us narcissistic Christians this morning, but maybe it will at the end. But not only that, the, the narcissism of our culture has led to rampant unbelief. And it's not something new. I think of in March 1966, a woman named Maureen Cleave, a reporter and a friend of Beatles member John Lennon, published a profile in the London Evening Standard entitled, How Does a Beatle Live? John Lennon Lives Like This. And in the profile, the 25-year-old Lennon discussed his wealth, his relationships, and also his view of Christianity, in which he said this, Christianity will go. It will vanish. It will shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And the undeniable truth for us today, brothers and sisters, is not only did Jesus outlive the unbelief of John Lennon, he outlives all unbelief. It's the beautiful thing about our God, about Jesus. He outlives all unbelief. He is superior in every way over all things. And he makes sense out of all of our lives. He is the truth. He is the one to which our lives must always align. To live contrary to his rule, to live contrary to his law in our lives is to live a life of constant frustration, a life of constant chaos. It's to live contrary to our created purpose. It's futile. It's hopeless. Now think of the words of John Piper, Pastor John Piper, who said this. Think about the whole picture of John. Jesus is being held up as glorious magnificent, splendid, supreme, full of grace and truth. And as we are unable to see him for who he really is, grace upon grace streams into our lives. And Jesus becomes for us the most precious reality in the world. Hear this, forgiving all our sins, providing all our righteousness, and becoming an all-satisfying treasure and friend. And let me just say something that came to my mind as I read that, and it's not part of my message, but that, those words, forgiving our sin. When we think about individuals who delight in abortion or individuals who have had abortions, we have a choice to make. We can either paint them as the enemy of all enemies, or we can declare to them that we have a Savior who can forgive them too. May we proclaim a Savior from sin to all people. 
May we proclaim that that is who he is. Now, let us jump into the word and behold him. Behold the one who is greater than all. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read John 3, verses 22 through 36 together. It's either right in front of you or you can follow along on the screen. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from, from heaven. You yourself bear, wit, or bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and our declaration today during our time, Jesus, is that you would increase and that we would decrease. That you become greater and, Lord, we become less. And we know that if that happens, Lord, something else will happen. Not only will you become greater, but our concerns will become less. Or the things, the burdens of our life will become less. The things that are weighing upon us, or the things that are burdening our, our thought process will become less because you are being put in your rightful place. Allow that to happen in this moment here and in those watching online. Have your way. Speak, O God, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. And just think about, just think with me about the accomplishments that mankind have made. Whether it be constructing the pyramids in, in ancient Egypt, whether it be inventing the telephone, whether it be um, mastering flight or walking on the moon or the beauty of DNA analysis, on and on the list of mind-boggling achievements uh, the human race, we could go on and on. Some would call them miraculous. Others just say they're, they're great. Yet, there is one who is greater than them all. There is one who stands head and shoulders above everyone and everything that we have ever accomplished. Name any person, name any place, name anything, name any accomplishment. And this word says, Jesus is greater. He is greater than them all. In fact, this word tells us that Jesus is greater than death. 
He is greater than our problems. He's greater than our sin. He's greater than our doubts. Jesus is greater than our past. He's greater than our plans. He's greater than our pain. He's greater than our fears. He's greater than our needs. And praise be to God, he is greater. He is greater. He's not just a power. He's the power above all powers. Consider the majestic redwood trees, some standing more than 300 feet in the air, or the storing mountain peaks, many or some that are five and a half miles up, and Jesus is greater. Picture the crashing ocean waves or the solar system in and of itself, and Jesus is greater. Think about Nobel Peace Prize winners and heads of state, and Jesus is greater than them all. You have Jesus, you have a greater than sign, and anything and everything else. Jesus is greater. And in today's passage, what we have is followers of John become distraught because their follower, John the Baptist, his popularity is decreasing and Jesus' popularity is increasing. And John the Baptist responds by reminding his disciples it's all about Jesus. He's not upset about this. In fact, he humbly delights in it, and he gives us an amazing lesson for us to follow. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the lesson that John the Baptist gives us is this. When Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. When Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. Yet getting to that joy and walking in that joy is no easy task for any of us. It involves denying our plans, denying our wants, and living for His plans. It involves pushing away the desire to make much of ourselves, to make ourselves the main point, and instead, so that we might give ourselves to making much of what the Spirit would have us make much of, which is Jesus and Jesus alone. So I want to lay before us today three pictures that just rise up from this text that lead us continually to him. The first picture that we see in this text is an honest struggle. The picture is an honest struggle. If you look at verse 25, it says, Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples. And in verse 26, And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and this is kind of an overstatement, but in their minds, all are going to him. So we've arrived at that point in the gospel storyline when the vibrant ministry of John the Baptist is beginning to wane and the ministry of Jesus is beginning to pick up. More and more people are going to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized. And when we read the very first part of John 4, we realize that Jesus isn't the one doing the baptizing. It's his disciples are, but they're baptizing, of course, under his um, authority. But here's the background. This story begins with an apparent rivalry, rivalry excuse me, between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. And John the Baptist here is being eclipsed. Jesus is growing in notoriety. People have heard about the marriage supper and, and the wine. They've heard about the miracles in Jerusalem. They've heard about Jesus' confrontation with religious elites. Now John's disciples or seeing Jesus' ministry growing, and they're, being, they're, or they're becoming jealous. They're not intrigued, or not, they're not just intrigued by Jesus' success, they're jealous of it. In the words of one theologian, envy is the opposite of love, 
Because it does not rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn. Hear this. Instead, envy, in its sick and sinister way, rejoices when others mourn and mourn when others rejoice. The underlying cause of envy is pride, along with its close cousin, the rival spirit. And let me just say this this morning. Jealousy and envy doesn't just live outside the church. It lives inside the church. And if we're not careful, we can become jealous of other people. We can become jealous of other things that are happening or gifts that other people have. We can become jealous of them. But not only does jealousy exist outside and inside the church, so do disagreements. And let me just say this. This might be a shock to some of you this morning. But God's own children can sometimes disagree. Did you know that? That God's own children can sometimes disagree. Two human beings may share so many things in common, but they're not going to agree on everything. It's amazing how often you and I can become disillusioned by the state of the church or by the imperfection of others or by the way they see things different than us. And this is where we realize that the church of Jesus Christ is not a society of perfect people. It's a society of redeemed people who are able to express our spirituality and what God has done through our weaknesses and, praise God, through our differences. That God uses our weaknesses and God uses our differences. Yet hear this, really hear this. I want you to hear this this morning. God reserves the right to use people that you disagree with. God reserves the right to use people that you and I might disagree with. John's disciples, Jesus' disciples, they're not getting along, yet God is using them both. Now, I can hear some of you thinking, well, aren't we supposed to be the family of God and shouldn't we always get along? And I would just stop and just uh, point you back to this. When was the last time you went on a family vacation? I just got off one, and I can tell you as much as I love my family, I love my family, we don't always agree. There are times where, listen, we drive each other crazy. There are times where I'm like, I love you guys, but I just don't want to be with you. I, I love you so much, but I don't like any one of you. And so there's that point, and here's the thing. Yes, we're family. Yes, we disagree, but we love each other, so we keep going. And we keep, we work it out. And the beauty is this. Yes, we're going to have disagreements among us, but we are family. We find this all throughout Scripture. In Genesis 13, you have the herdsman of Abraham and the herdsman of Lot. That's uncle and nephew. There's a family disagreement. In Genesis 31, we have Jacob and Laban. Not only uncle and nephew, but also father-in-law and son-in-law having a family confrontation. In Genesis 37, we have Joseph and his brothers having a pretty intense confrontation. We get to the New Testament, you have the 12 disciples. That's now kind of a spiritual family arguing more than once about which one of them gets to be the greatest. We get to the book of Acts and we find the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul having a disagreement, as Pastor Jordan mentioned last week, concerning the law. We can read that or about that in the book of Galatians. In Acts 15, we have Paul and Barnabas, a powerhouse, a missionary partnership. And they have such a strong disagreement, strong contention, they break up. 
So this amazing partnership, mission partnership, is broken up because of a strong disagreement. That is a reality. Don't get this idea that when Christians hang around with each other, there will never be disagreements. Here's what I know. If you put 10 Baptists in a room, you'll get at least 15 opinions. I mean, it's a reality of, of life um, among us. We will disagree, but please hear this. We must stop competing. We must stop competing. Because here's, here's what I mean by that. Some of us are going like, yo, yeah, we disagree. There's a lot of people who disagree with me. And if they saw things the right way, they wouldn't disagree anymore. Because what we think is, I'm the right one and everybody else has the problem. Meaning, we're the ones that are fighting for our way above everything else. And when you fight for your way, or when I fight for my way, I'm standing in the way of God's way. Let me say it again for those of you that weren't listening because you tune me out because I'm stepping on your toes too much. When you fight for your way, or when I fight for my way, I'm standing in the way of God's way. Standing in the way of God's way. One of the things this past week, hanging out with my family, I was just rejoicing in what God is doing in and through our church and the things that God is, is doing. And I mentioned about our, our vision team that has put together to kind of walk through this, this UC, UC partnership. And, of course, we have about around 10 people in our group. And, yes, you, you put all those people in a room, and we're going we're gonna to see things differently. Not everyone has the same point of view in every situation, but... By the grace of God, every decision that we've had to make has been unanimous. Why? Because in those moments, we put aside our opinions for the sake of what we know and believe God is doing. Let me just go a step further. Think about where we are as a church. So the first Baptist Church of Ocean Let me ask a question to us today. What is the most important generation in the first Baptist Church of Ocean Way right now? The, the most important generation of this church is the next one is the next generation. And let me just tell you something, brothers and sisters, someone's going to reach them. Someone's going to reach them. It's either going to be the world who is after them or it's going to be the church that lock arms and says, we need them, we want them, we got to have them. We're gonna, whoever wants the next generation the most will win them. Oh, may it be us. Oh, may it be us. Oh, may we lock arms and say whatever we need to do for the sake of the next generation will do so that we'll see them one for the glory of Christ. Yes, there will be struggles that will arise in the life of this church. Yet in those struggles, may we fight less for our will and our wants. And may we fight harder for the name of Jesus. May we fight harder for the glory of Jesus. May he be exalted. So the first picture is that of an honest struggle. The second picture we see is that of a humble servant. A humble servant. And what we know is that humility opposes pride. Pride is a cancer to the human soul. Pride ruins everything. Pride got Satan kicked out of heaven. Pride got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Pride took Saul, the king of Israel, out of the kingdom of Israel. Pride destroys relationships. It ruins marriages. It ruins families. It ruins churches. And at this point, pride is tempting John the Baptist. His followers are coming to him, wanting him to think about himself more. Yet listen to his response in verse 27. 
John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that if we see someone growing in their relationship with the Lord, and all of a sudden it seems like they're getting all the attention, they're getting all the credit, are we able to say, God is doing that? Or do we sit around going, huh, they're, they're just prideful individuals and making it all about them. It's so if, if we're not careful, it's so easy to forget that God is able to use people that we disagree with, or God is able to bless people, and hear this, God still has enough blessings to use you and me if we give ourselves to him. God isn't running out of blessings anytime soon. God can bless a church down the street, and he can still bless us if we make ourselves blessable. Maybe the reason some of us aren't being blessed by God is that we're not making ourselves blessable. We're too busy complaining about everyone else and looking at everyone else and and we're not focusing on maybe there's something in us that needs to go for God to be able to use us. Listen, any role that you and I get to play in the advancement of the kingdom of God is a gift. It's a gift. Therefore, we're free from having to lose it or having to fight for it. There is a sovereign God who gives everybody what he thinks they should have, and we should want want for each other what God wants for them. I should want for you what God wants for you. I think of, in the Old Testament, there's a great story of Moses going up to Mount Sinai. Back and forth, back and forth. And on one occasion, he goes up with 70 elders. And they come back down, and as they're coming back down, two of the elders begin to prophesy. And now Joshua, Moses' assistant, he wasn't happy about it at all. So he goes to Moses and said, Moses, you're the one that should be prophesying. You're the one that should be speaking for God, not these two jokers. Stop them. These aren't the... And basically Joshua's saying, I don't want to listen to them, Moses. I want to listen to you. Stop them. And the beautiful thing is Moses looks at Joshua and says, Joshua, why are you jealous for my sake? And then Moses said this, I wish that all of God's people were prophets and that the Spirit of God was on them all. Is that not a beautiful response? Moses is saying, I wish God would do that in all of you. I wish God would do that in every single person. I wish every single person was open to God doing that in their lives. What a way to live. When we celebrate what God is doing in the lives of other people and not just celebrate it, we want it more. We want it more. What a way to live. And then look at verse 28. John continues, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but have been sent before him. So John is saying, I'm not him. One of the most basic lessons that you and I have to learn over and over and over again is kind of a twofold lesson. Number one, we're not God. There is a God, and he is not you, and he is not me. So we are not God. But then secondly, the second lesson is this. You are no one's savior. You and I, we can't save anyone. Have you ever tried to save someone? Lord knows I have. I've tried to save them. I've tried to point them to Jesus, but I've done it in my own strength, my own power, my own ability. And guess what? It didn't take. It didn't take at all because I am a bad savior. We are bad at saving, but we have a good, amazing Savior that we point people to, and He is really, really good at saving. May we continually point people to Him. 
and see what God does to us. I think of the words of Martin Luther who said, God created the world out of nothing. When I realize that I too am nothing, perhaps God can create something out of me. God created everything out of nothing. When we realize that we are nothing, maybe, just maybe, God can create something out of us. And then John continues in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So to put this in modern language, John is saying, I am barely the, or merely, excuse me, the best man celebrating the union between the bride and the groom. So John is telling his disciples, I'm the best man. It's not my job to be in the spotlight. How odd would it be if you attended a wedding and at that wedding, the star of the show was the best man? Imagine if he demanded that he would be the last one to walk down the aisle, even after the bride, that he had to stand in front of the pastor during the ceremony. He had to be in front of, of all during the pictures, of every picture. He had to be the one to cut the cake, to, to throw the garter. Now, not only would that be a weird thing to be a part of, hear this, it would be wrong. It would be absolutely wrong. And here's what John is saying. I'm just the best man. So at the end of verse 29, John says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What does that mean? It means when Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. When Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. And then look at verse 30. Really listen to verse 30. John says this, Above all, he must increase but I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. John's ministry was not about making a name for himself. John's ministry wasn't about bringing people, having his name on the stage, um, giving people all kind of different flyers with his name on it. John's ministry was about pointing people to Jesus. William Carey, the great missionary to India, when he was dying, turned to his friend and said, when I'm gone, don't speak of William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. Speak only about his Savior. He must increase. I must decrease. Like a hungry baby screams for milk or like a flame demands oxygen to continue to burn. The deity of Christ demands that he must increase and we must decrease. Like a Falling boulder from a cliff that's destined to hit the bottom. There is a destiny for all of us that demands that he must increase and we must decrease. As a roaring lion deserves our respect, Jesus deserves to be glorified and praised, not just in our presence, but in our lives, so that he must increase and we must decrease. Brothers and sisters, in all of our lives, listen, if if this book is true, and I believe it is, and if Jesus is who this book says he is, and I believe that he is, then why wouldn't we want him to increase? And now somebody came to me after the second service and said this, you can't make Jesus any bigger than he already is. And absolutely, that's true. But you know what we can do? We can diminish him by standing in his way. And oftentimes what people see by looking at us is a diminished version of the Savior that we say that we serve. And instead, let's get out of the way and exalt him. May he increase. May we decrease. 
I'm going to end this section by giving you the words of J.C. Rod. Just listen to these words. We can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high of thoughts about Christ. We can never love him too much, trust him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon him, and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth. So it's not that we think less of ourselves. It's just that we think about ourselves less. And think about him more. Exalt him more in your life. A humble servant. And the third picture that I want to lay before you quickly is a heavenly son. A heavenly son. I wish I could lay all these verses before us. We only have time to unpack two. Verse 31 and verse 36. In verse 31 it says, He who comes from above is above all. And then it says, He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is the only person in all of history who actually descended from heaven for the purpose of making God fully known to us. Let me just say something that other religions um, say different. Man does not become God. Let me say it again. Man, you and I, we do not become God. But praise be to God, God became man. And God became man and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory as our Savior. And he is worthy of our lives. Though Jesus is human, he is in the category of one. Napoleon Bonaparte was by... By all accounts, a a giant of history. We know him as a soldier, as a general, as an emperor, as an exile. And, And although no one would probably ever call him a theologian, Napoleon faced a question that all of us face. Who is Jesus? And history, of course, has given us all kind of different answers. But near the end of his life, while he was exiled, Emperor Napoleon came to the following conclusion about the King of Kings. Let me just read what he is Noted as saying, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men and women will die for him. In every other existence but that of Christ, how many imperfections. From the first day to the last, he is the same, majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them, giving no other reason than those tremendous words, I am God. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and others in this world, there is no possible comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find one similar to Jesus or anything which can approach the gospel he preached. Everything about him is extraordinary. So said Napoleon, but what say you? Who is Jesus? Scripture tells us in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That includes Napoleon, That includes Hitler, 
That includes Pharaoh, and that includes you, and that includes me. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the blessing comes to those who do it now. To those who do it now. And then John ends this section. The Apostle John ends this section this way in verse 36. He says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. How have we or will we respond to who Jesus is? This passage ends with a contrast between those who believe and those who refuse to believe or obey the Son. Their refusal to obey the Son leads to the wrath of God remaining on them. As Pastor Jordan said last week, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. We're already condemned by our sin. You see, the gospel is a true story with profound implications that we can't avoid. We can't avoid that we all have a choice to make concerning Jesus. And when all is said and done, there are two choices that you and I can make concerning him. So two choices. There's only two. There's not three. There's not four. There's not 12. There's not 100. Two choices that you can make when it comes to Jesus. Choice number one, go to hell. Go to hell. Some of you just looked up like, whoo, he just said the bad word in church. That is a choice. You and I can go to hell. Now, I, I believe hell is real, and I believe God sends people there. Now, we have tried over the last few years to make it more delicate and go, oh, no, no, God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves to hell. And now, in some stances, that's true. I mean, we refuse the gift that God has offered, but ultimately we forget what hell is. No one made it more clear than Jesus. No one spoke of hell more than Jesus did. That hell is a place of div divine punishment. It's not a, a place of just self-inflicted consequences. It's a place where God pours out his wrath upon those who would not believe. And it's not just a little bit of wrath and then it's all gone. No, forever his wrath because sin against a holy God deserves eternity of wrath. And that's what God offers to those who will not accept the Son. So first choice, you go to hell. Or second choice, and this is what I beg of you today, you go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead. And it says this, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from that wrath, so therefore we go to Jesus. He went to the cross. Jesus endured the wrath that you and I deserved. So the issue becomes simple. Either we go to Jesus and receive what he earned for us, or we refuse Jesus and we pay the penalty ourselves. Have you gone to Jesus? Or are you in this moment running from him? If you are running from him today, I would beg you, in light of what we see, stop your running, turn from trusting in yourself, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus. And he will save you now. He will save you right now. He won't give you a 12-step plan to follow, and if you get through them all, he'll save you. Then no, he will save you right this very moment. Oh, that you would call out to him. But let me also say to the child of God in this room, 
Is Jesus at this moment increasing in your life? Is Jesus at this moment becoming greater as you become less? Or at this moment, are you standing in the way? Are you pushing your wants, your desires, your plans, your will? When it comes to each individual in this room, my prayer for you is that Jesus would increase in your life. And when it comes to this, his church, may Jesus increase all the more in and through us. Because, brothers and sisters, we can't save anyone, but we have a great Savior. We, and when we try to exalt ourselves, we lead them away from the one who is all, always exalted. Let's continue to point people to Jesus. And may it start right now, and may it continue tonight through Vacation Bible School. And may when we come here today, may we lay aside any Sunday we come, any time we come, in the midst of our lives, lay aside our wants, our wills, and like John say, may he become greater. May he become greater. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. Call the musicians down and let us pray together. Father, have your way today. Become greater in the midst of us, your people. Lord, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be a day, God, of turning from sin, turning from trusting self, and turning to you, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. And you will say, Lord, you will by no means... By no means turn away from any who come to you in that way. But I also, Father, pray for Christians across this room and those listening online. Lord, may you increase in our lives all the more. And the beautiful thing is, Lord, you're able to increase in our suffering. You're able to increase, Lord, in our, our diseases. You're able to increase in our difficulties. You're able to increase, God, in every area of our lives as we say, Lord, have your way, be exalted, be glorified, and Lord, we trust you. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.